Just like that, the second hour is here. Outkick 360 this afternoon. Glad you're with us. Thursday edition. Dane Bradshaw from the SEC Network will join us in about 20 minutes or so. Hutton Withrow here. Sweet 16 action tipping off tonight. Chad, we're headed to Madison Square Garden. We've got the doubleheader there with Kansas State, Michigan State, Tennessee, and Florida Atlantic. And uh, Clay says we're we're staying. We're not leaving. We'll be there for a while. We will. Clay's private helicopter will be taking us right to the roof. We'll be dropping right in. Yeah. We're excited. Also excited because everyone I tweeted out that we'd be in Madison Square Garden for the first time, almost everyone responds and says, keep your head on a swivel around the garden right now. <laughs> Apparently it's a very dangerous place around Madison Square Garden. So luckily we'll be, you know, riding in with Clay and you know, no one dislikes Clay, right? <laughs> so we'll be fine. I mean, we'll be fine in New York. With it Clay. is amazing Surely. how many people come up that, you know, these fan bases that hate him that come up and get selfies and get him to sign something. I'm concerned less about uh, college fan bases now and more about other people that may hate Clay uh, on, on the streets of New York. But it is funny. Clay claims that he's like a 100% never had an altercation with anyone. No one has ever said anything negative. Right. I have seen people say negative things to him, but it is few and far between. Usually it's people, <laughs> hey, man, love you. Keep, keep sticking it to him. Love you, man. Even when Clay was all sports all the time, it was Alabama fans would come up and say that. Yeah. Now he's getting threats from Alabama fans if he ever takes his kids to a game. It's so. not the first time he's seen the uh, F. Clay Travis signs at an Alabama Event. No, not at all. This has been going on for years. <laughs> uh, the uh, we celebrate it every time too. We uh, we'll get into the matchups with, with Dane Bradshaw of the Sweet Sixteen coming up. Uh, Brett Favre, uh, more news there. Of course, we've seen the the lawsuits and then McAfee's response and all of that uh, a couple of weeks ago. So there's a text message and messages that have surfaced uh, regarding the investigation and the allegations that Favre was accepting money from the Mississippi welfare program um, on the under, knowing that it was going to certain things that he wanted investment in, namely uh, speaking engagements that he was a part of and allegedly a volleyball team as well. And the, the Southern Miss volleyball program. Uh, yes, yes, the program. The, uh, he, there's a text to the former head of the Mississippi state welfare program who's now been sentenced to 32 years in prison um, where he's referencing getting him a, a new car, a new vehicle, a Raptor to be specific. And there are other things within this, but he's wanting to surprise him, uh, Favre is, with a Raptor. And this was back in 2019 in a text. Um, there's no indication per front office sports that Favre actually purchased said car. But John Davis is the guy's name. He helped to allegedly divert about $8 million to these projects that Favre was involved in. And the craziness with it is, like, he's, Favre has denied that he knew anything that, that the money he was receiving was on behalf of or coming from the welfare funds. But, I mean, some of those that have been connected with his texts have already, they, I mean, they've already pleaded guilty. And Favre's still out there, and he's, of course, suing those for defamation, namely guys like Pat McAfee. I don't want to risk getting caught up in this lawsuit well, with Brett Favre, so I'll be very careful about what I say. I'll just say there's a heck of a lot of smoke around this with Brett Favre and his entanglement in this welfare scheme. Well, and these, and these texts and are going to they're, – they're, those that are 
you know, going against him is the same department that John Davis was the head of. They're saying that these texts prove that he knew what he was doing was illegal. There's a heck of a lot of smoke around this. Yeah. I can't call the guy guilty with 100% certainty because I don't know. But some of these texts are pretty damning. Uh, the money and where it was going looks really bad for Brett Favre. I am reminded of the Murdoch family in this whole story. This hmm. is very much a good old boy network story. And I'm not saying, you know, Brett Favre's involved in murder the way the Murdoch family was with that, that high-profile case we all just witnessed. But it does make, it reminds me of tight-knit southern state communities where it's, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know government officials at different levels. There may be attorneys involved also. And I think it's also some hero worship at play here. Going back and looking through a lot of the text, these guys just worship Brett Favre. They love him. They want to do anything they can to help him to be in his circle. And I think Brett Favre took advantage of some of that and enjoyed it, like a lot of people would, I'm sure. But I, I do think that I'm seeing a lot of that with this story. Again, don't know that he's 100% guilty or any of that. There's just a heck of a lot of smoke around the story. Yeah, the USM volleyball complex with the donation you mentioned, there was a there was a donation to the athletic fund at the university. $5 million is uh, the reported amount. There was also a pharmaceutical company that Favre was involved with or was backing that was making an, an inhalable concussion treatment or they were trying to develop that. And they also received money from uh, these, these funds. But again, Favre is saying he didn't know where the money was coming from, but he certainly knew John Davis. He references him, who was the head of the welfare fund in Mississippi, and the department there, he references him multiple times in other texts to other people about getting money from John Davis. Uh, Separate of that, I don't want to go too conspiracy theorist here, yeah. but the more I hear about pharmaceutical companies and yeah. big pharma, the more I'm convinced that is going to be the demise of this country and this world before anything else. Anything. That, that's a, that's I mean, a topic for another day. It may be another show. You're but saying I just, that Google and... I don't want to bring people down too much, but I just feel like the more you read about and the more you hear about some of the things going on, it's pretty disturbing. You think Google and this Amazon story is disturbing and everyone also. don't already have the chokehold on that? I think that they've got just a <laughs> supply of whatever is needed, and they're withholding it. And there's also supplies of other things that could infect people that they're withholding. For the right time. I'm again moving on, but just you know something to think about. Just put in the back of your mind. Chad, uh, in the free agent news and just in NFL news in general, the trade yesterday. I'm curious on this. Elijah Moore, who had been wanting to tap out in in New York with the Jets uh, for about a year now, he uh, so he's traded to the Browns yesterday. And yeah, they signed Nicole Hardeman. And I, I yesterday I was referencing it's kind of the swap. You want out? He's in. But also keep in mind the Jets are trying to trade for Aaron Rodgers. And they received a second-round pick in return for Elijah Moore. Now, the Jets are saying that the, the pick in return had nothing to do with the pending trade. But, I mean, come on. It links up. There's an extra pick that you can add, and you've already replaced Moore with another receiver that can also do end-arounds and be a running back slash wide receiver out of the backfield, can be an extension of a run game as well as be a speed demon on the outside for Rodgers. Uh, this is going to help them. And Moore, who's been you know clamoring to get out, he gets out, and I think the pick actually ends up helping the Jets get this deal done. Apparently, the two sides haven't talked in about a week. Um, 
Things are about to pick up, though, at the owners' meetings because Mark Murphy will be there, uh, Davis will be there, and we will see ownership there as well, of course. And I think that's where we see some things ha hammered out. Maybe it doesn't get done before the draft or draft weekend, but I think it's all but done, and the Packers continue to want a first-round pick plus other picks. Now the Jets have another second. Hutton, you may, you're one of the best I know about uh, salary cap and price for trades and trade value. Would this make sense now with this story with the second round pick? Yeah. If it's done before the draft, first round pick this year, second round pick that they acquired for Elijah Moore, and what Andrew Brandt described as a next year escalator where it starts as a fourth and could go to, let's say, a second, maybe a first. Is that too much at this point for Aaron Rodgers, or is that the sweet spot? Because so, you know the Packers are seeking two number ones. Well, the, the clarification by Schefter re, uh, earlier today was that the Packers are seeking a first-round pick. So, one. Singular. And so, then, that could be fourth to second round, what Andrew Brandt was describing, based on his play. Yeah, and he said... And availability. And then he said, but that's not all they want. What, what they want in return may be more picks this year, but the second-round pick definitely helps. And I, the Jets are also going to point to, uh, you know, the trades in the past, but the Packers should too, because... The recent trades for quarterbacks have been massive, especially future Hall of Famers. Um, and whenever we start to discuss where the Jets are at quarterback, they're desperate. So I don't blame the Packers for dragging this out. And they should get what they want in return because the Jets have to pay it. They shouldn't take anything less than the first round pick this year. And the escalators make a ton of sense because if he's going to stick around for a couple of years the Packers can get more in return. And if he doesn't, make it a conditional deal where if he does and he retires, well, you still got the first-round pick this year. But do you see where that could be part of the haul? The sure. first-round pick this year and that bonus second-round pick yes. they just picked up? I, I think it could, And yeah. then, I, then I think next year's would be the one escalator-type pick they would get. And the, you know, That seems to make sense for me, but the Packers can't ask for the moon right now because the situation the Jets are in. Yeah, I, mean, I think you're right on that. And, it, and again, they're saying it doesn't have any connection with Rodgers and the Packers, but I mean, uh, it had little to do with the Packers, I believe was the quote. What they mean by that is Moore wanted out and has wanted out for a while, but they found a team willing to give them a second-round pick in exchange for him, and they're able now to package that and move that again if that's what it takes to get Aaron Rodgers uh, through the door. The, Odell Beckham Jr. continues to be linked with the Jets. Um, NFL.com has that today where OBJ, financials still need to be worked out, was the report. Of course they do. But it's the Jets that are the leading candidate to land him, too. I mean, how many receivers are they going to have? I mean, I said it yesterday, from the Jets as a joke, <laughs> as a punchline, to the Miami Heat know, super man. team. In, in, one, in one offseason, possibly. But they weren't a joke last year. But in very short order, they, they could become an all-star team. Well, as long as they have Rodgers. Imagine well, all that's, this that's the key and they piece. don't get him. And that's why the Packers are doing what they're doing. Uh, Foster Moreau, uh, we, we have seen, NFL tied in. We have seen stories of this where uh, guys will go in for a physical um, to get ready for the, the offseason or you have to pass a physical in order to get a certain roster bonus. Um, just a return for OTAs later. The Combine has also uh, seen situations where players arrive and they go through a physical and things pop up. Foster Moreau was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma 
and they caught this with uh, the Raiders, and now he's with the uh, he was visiting the Bengals um, as an opportunity to sign, and then he went to New Orleans, and these these physicals caught this condition, and he posted on social media through what was somewhat of a miraculous process. This free agency period has been life changing for me. During a routine physical conducted by the Saints medical team, I've come to learn that I have Hodgkin's lymphoma. I will be stepping away from football. Um, that is a, look, uh, leukemia and lymphoma, nothing to mess with. I, they have done great things, though, in the advancement of blood cancers. And here's hoping, uh, David Quisenberry is a great example. Offensive lineman for the Houston Texans who, who had le uh, le leukemia and it returned to the NFL. Here's hoping that Foster Moreau gets that same opportunity. And, you know, he's, it's a sobering deal. He's fighting a new opponent now. It's not football. It's not sports. It's, it's life and death. And I wish him nothing but the best. Uh, Chad and I both do. Of course, everyone listening or watching does too. But, man, you, you're trying to go in and get a new contract. And they say, hey, by the way, we've, we found something. You have cancer. It's, it's one of the biggest fears that I have, probably everyone has, is just your routine physical. Hey, something's abnormal yeah. here. And then you get word that something's very, very wrong. Um, that's not the day that anyone wants to have or the news they want to get. It's also, you know, a good reminder that, you know, go get checked up routinely because this was, as Foster Moreau said, life-saving that he had a physical to this extent yeah. with the Saints. And it was found when it was and prayers that he turns out okay for that reason because it was caught when it was and they found this. So. Well Terrible story, and again, wishing him nothing but the best. 25 years old, too. Uh, and again, trying to get a second contract there after four years with, with the Las Vegas Raiders. Um, so Big Ben says that the 49ers reached out to him last year. This was right after the Jimmy G injury uh, with his foot that led to Brock Purdy getting an opportunity because Trey Lance was hurt, and then... Garoppolo goes down, Purdy comes on and doesn't lose a game until they get to the postseason. We've seen this with was Roethlisberger. Drew Brees, about a year and a half ago, got a call by, I believe, the Saints again. Yep. And there have been others that uh, uh, Philip Rivers. Philip Rivers gets a call by Phillip Phillip Rivers, multiple teams every Phillip year. Philip Rivers, it was reported that he wants to return and get a chance to return. Um, Had his chance last I year. Mean, <laughs> this past season with the 49ers, possibly. And now you have Cam Newton that's trying out, trying to get back in the league. I mean, teams will knock on any door, turn over any stone, trying to figure out who's available because that also tells you just how thin the talent gap is between who's already been there and recently retired and the guys on the street by the time November and December roll around and you have a playoff caliber type team like San Francisco did. Think about if Ben, if Roethlisberger did that. And we don't have the Purdy story. Because Roethlisberger's not coming there to back up Brock Purdy. He's coming no. there to start. And we don't get that run that we saw from the last pick in the NFL draft last April. Let me just say to Ben Roethlisberger, brilliant job by not doing this. Brilliant. Yeah. Retire as a Steeler. He talked about the black and gold and how much that was important to him. He didn't, couldn't see himself wearing anything other than black and gold. The financial and long-term relational benefits of being with one franchise as big as the Pittsburgh Steelers for the entirety of your career is enormous. And it far outweighs you trying to come back when we all saw that he was done, 
the year before physically. Yeah, really bad. Trying to come back for one last gasp run with the 49ers midseason. So kudos to you, Big Ben, for making that decision. I think it's a smart one to not try to do that and to stay a forever Steeler. There's benefits of that for the rest of his life. Wait, and consider this. The injury happens to Garoppolo. Purdy comes in, runs the offense, they win the game. Then they reach out to Roethlisberger, right, during that time period. But they go back to Purdy, and Shanahan opens it up, runs his offense with the rookie seventh-round last pick in the draft. And it worked. Yeah, and it, to perfection. And now he's the presumed starter, and should be, uh, despite the moves they've made this offseason with, what, Sam Darnold's there, Lance is coming off injury, so is Purdy. He's recovering now, too, but signs are, based on the surgery he had, that it was went as well as it could. He should be ready for training camp. We head back to the Sweet 16 when we return. Dane Bradshaw from the SEC Network helps us preview tonight's matchups, and we'll peek ahead to tomorrow as well. Dane's with us next in Outkick 360. Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick network. We're previewing the Sweet 16 tonight. Chad and I will join Clay Travis at Madison Square Garden for two really good games. And then, of course, you've got the games in Vegas. And then we switch gears tomorrow night. Another great four-pack as well. Dane Bradshaw joins us on Outkick 360 to help us preview all of the matchups from the SEC network. Dane, hope you're doing well, man. We appreciate the time as always. Exciting times, man. I'm doing great. Good now, to talk to y'all again. Absolutely. Um, just on paper, as a basketball fan, what's the best matchup tonight? Ooh. Um, well, if, if, if your alma mater's in it, it's got to be Tennessee. <laughs> right, but if I right. separate myself from there, uh, you know, Gonzaga, UCLA, uh, I'm really intrigued by that one. And I, I, I picked Gonzaga to win the whole thing. Yeah. Not necessarily because I think they're the best team in the country, but as topsy-turvy as the top 10 have been, I was like, you know what? Gonzaga has gotten better throughout the course of the year. They're able to come in the tournament a little bit more under the radar than years past instead of having some 30-1 and one record where there's a lot of pressure on them. And, um, and, and I think their guard play has, has improved uh, tremendously, whereas earlier in the year it was more just about Timmy. So um, I've got my eyes on the, the Gonzaga-UCLA one. Did you ever get a chance to play at Madison Square Garden, Dane? I did. I did. We had uh, uh, we went 0-2, unfortunately. It was uh, in that preseason NIT tournament, they called it back in the day, around Thanksgiving. And uh, we lost to Butler and then played North Carolina in the uh, consolation round with uh, Raymond. Uh, no. What, Tyler Hansborough was on that team, um, and they had the other guard that was uh, Ty Lawson. So um, is there a mystique about that building? This is our first time to ever step foot in it when you're there and playing in it. Or is it, you know, I, I think it's a little bit different for the preseason NIT, no offense, than the NCAA tournament, I'm sure, there. But what, what yeah. is it like playing in that venue? No, it, it was awesome, man. It, it really was. That was one where, like, at first you were excited about it, but then once you actually got there, it was like, wow, this is real. Just because you started reliving all the 
you know, Chicago Bulls, New York Knicks type plays back in the day or, or the Reggie Miller plays. And you're like, man, that happened right here on this court. And just you do have that nostalgic feel. It, it kind of like, you know, if you go to a Lambeau field or some of these historic places, uh, Wrigley. And uh, that to me, to, to be on that same court where those guys had played was 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 really cool. So is Tennessee a product of the SEC and how they play in the SEC with athleticism, physicality, when you see the three teams that are in the Sweet 16? Or does Tennessee go above and beyond that? Because a lot of the national talk has been Tennessee's overly physical or even dirty. What do you think when you hear that, Dane? No, I think Tennessee had separated itself during conference play as the most physical defensive minded team in the sec. And everybody knew that going into games that they played was, Hey, Tennessee's defense travels. It's consistent. Ken Palm has it rated as the number one defense in the country. And the knock on them was always, yeah, but their offense is in Jekyll and Hyde. Now you do go some, at least I would go to some team shoot arounds and things like that where coaches like, man, Tennessee really puts their hands on you. I mean, they'll, They'll foul. They'll they'll do some things where they kind of press up on you quick, and then they take their hands off. Um, but uh, it's not to to me. My biggest thing is, all right, these officials in the NCAA tournament for them to advance to call a Sweet Sixteen game, they have to get graded out well enough from the round of thirty two game, and then that continues on and on. So, um, does if the officials let them play more, does that favor Tennessee? Absolutely. But um, to me, it's hey, these officials are going to call it the best way and buy the book as, as, as they can, especially in the NCAA tournament. So, um, and, and look, Tennessee admitted they were fouling too much earlier in the year. That was, that was a narrative in, in February. Zakai Ziegler was getting in foul trouble. So it was something that they admitted they had to clean up in terms of we have to defend better without fouling because we were getting beat at the free throw line, and, and they've been able to do that. Dane Bradshaw with us. SEC Network is where you can find him. Dane, I would define the vast majority of these teams remaining as defensive teams. You know, you got Gonzaga. I, I think of this because you picked the Zags to win. They're on offense, right? They're going to put up 80 if they if that's what it takes. They can put, put up 90 if that's what it takes. Bama's both. They, can, they, they defend well. They also can do the same thing as the Zags. Beyond that, like, do you think this is where we see the turn for the offensive-minded teams that kind of take the charge? Or are, is defense going to win this thing? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, look, I, I do think there, there's part of me that does think, you know what, some of these great defensive teams, and I, I looked at this for the SEC's perspective, is you felt like they were going to get into that Sweet 16 area or maybe round of 32, and it was whether it was Tennessee, Arkansas, Auburn, some of these teams where their defense was ahead of their offense and the narrative was just going to be, you know what, that defense traveled, but ultimately they put too much pressure um, on their defense with their offensive woes. And, and so I do, I think those, those balance teams and it's those teams that are, that are both ranked in the top 30 offense and defensive efficiencies that always advance. And they're, they're the ones that are the most balanced. And that's why Alabama um, rightfully so is a, is a top contender for it because they, they have that uh, Tennessee, uh, you know, they've caught a break a little bit because their worst shooting night was against Louisiana where you could afford that bad shooting night and you hope that got the lid off the rim and maybe they can establish some consistency from this point on. Arkansas-UConn tonight. Dane, you were big on Nick Smith coming back and what he brought to that Arkansas team. Did not get a lot of playing time, did not score against Kansas. He's very upset after the game. Does that change at all what you think about this Arkansas team and 
what kind of chance do you give them to pull the upset against UConn and move on? No, they're and I'm, I mean this respectfully. They're, they're front runners, man. Once they start getting it rolling and they figure out a rotation that starts working for them, and they get that identity, it they they look like one of the toughest teams in the country. On the flip side, when they go in a slump, you you look up and, and it's been you know three or four straight weeks, and you're wondering what the heck's going down in Fayetteville right now. Why can't they figure it out? But when, when they do, and it clicks, and, and credit Musselman, he's been so good in March, as I'm sure you guys have covered, um, and so good with these turnarounds. But I, I admit, or I agree, what surprised me the most was they were able to get this far without significant contribution from Nick Smith. Because not the whole reason you bring him back, but part of the reason you, you kind of have all the drama and the things with him in and out of the lineup and inserting him in late February was because he – was the highest ceiling for your team. So you had to have some of those growing pains and for them to do it without him. Um, and not to say he doesn't contribute in some way that they, they got it done against UConn though, man, that Eric Musselman always has a theme for his team. Like it, it might be some corny. If it wants to make the game go fast, it'll be a NASCAR theme or something like that. And I don't know what it is, but it's got to start with the offensive glass. That's where UConn just bullies you, punks you. They get about 40% of their misses. That's one of the best in the country. And they're big. And I do think, even though Arkansas doesn't have skilled bigs with these Mitchell twins, but guys like them and, and uh, Walsh down low, that they'll be ready for the fight. And I could see them uh, trying to pull off this upset if they can control the offensive glass. Arkansas is the eight seed. We're, of the three of us are behind them and how they're playing now. We see their potential. Michigan State's a seven seed. Do you view them the same way based on what they did in the early rounds? Yeah, and gosh, I... You sit there and you say, I'm kind of affected by the brand, too, and, yeah, and, and Izzo. Yeah. I think we all are, to where even though Kansas State's guards have been so good, they shoot it better than Michigan State. Um, and on paper, you'd say, well, I think Kansas State's the team to win. But it's just that legendary coach and Tom Izzo being at his best at the best time that makes you want to favor the Spartans a little bit. And knowing that this – and sometimes when you have one of these Cinderella stories throughout the season, because that's what Kansas State has been. I mean, they were picked to finish last in their league, and look what they've done. Um, but sometimes I, I anticipate that um, to you know come to a halt. And for them to advance as far as they did, beat Kentucky is is uh, quite an accomplishment. Um, whereas you, you sit there and you know get a blue blood type school in Michigan State, uh, I, I somewhat favor the Spartans, but I, I can admit. I'm guilty of the brand and the head coach more than just the X's and O's. Dane Jerome Tang had to wait his turn to get a head coaching opportunity, and boy, has he made the most of it in year one. I mean, this this ranks high to me in the list of first-year accomplishments for a coach. You mentioned pick last in the Big 12, and here they are in the Sweet 16 as a three seed, and they just knocked off Kentucky. What do you think about this Kansas State team and their chance to maybe advance to the Final Four in Houston? Well, um, Look, uh, again, they got to get past Michigan State, of course, but when everybody talks about I like guard play in March, they're the classic example. You had Oscar Shibway last game on the other end just dominating with, what, 21 and 20 or whatever he had. And at halftime of that game, I get a lot of things wrong, but I was texting some Kentucky friends. I was like, hey, unfortunately, I'll take the best point guard on the court over the best big man on the court. Now, Casey Wallace for Kentucky made his, his case for it too. But ultimately, it was Noel that took over the game. The smallest guy on the court was getting it going in transition. He made the big threes. He penetrated all those things. 
And um, I think that's where uh, they've got that edge is, is can they have the uh, best playmaking guards in the backcourt and, and credit them for making some of those big shots when there was a lid on the rim, the entire game, when it came to crunch time, they stepped up and absolutely made some daggers. Who's the best matchup for Tennessee if they get past Florida Atlantic? You know, I, I like uh, – I think they do okay against either. I would go probably Kansas State, um, even though they, they've got the quick guards. What I like about Tennessee is just when somebody comes in the game, the opposing coach isn't saying, let's put that guy on an island. Let's go at him. Like, they can all guard the ball. They can all switch. Um, now, they can – with that said, I'll contradict myself a little bit – they can struggle with some of the faster guards with not having Ziegler out there that can get past them and force rotations. But again, they, they just do such a good job with their one-on-one defense that a big reason why they're the number one defense in the country is because they often don't require help. If I get beat off the dribble, then I got to have help come over. Now we're in rotations. Now we're scrambling. Now we're closing out. Now we're getting beat. And that's what teams want to do to you. And it rarely happens against Tennessee because they guard the ball so well. And that's that's really what has saved them to this point and gotten them in this position. Dane, there were, uh, whenever name, image, likeness came into effect, there was a, a, a theory or a belief that the tournament was going to be ruined based on name, image, likeness. And the portal <laughs> transfer portal as well. But I, I, with the teams remaining right now, we mentioned Kansas State, and the portal will certainly help them. There are 11 conferences represented in the Sweet 16. I think this is to credit the transfer portal and how the, the talent spreads out and we're seeing more teams competitive. Now, you know, we're not mm-hmm. talking about Duke or North Carolina, but in regards to the ACC, Miami is the team that's not talked about enough. And in regards to the SEC, we're seeing brand new brands that are making runs at the very top of yeah. the game. Yeah, and it's allowed college basketball to retain some of the top talent. Uh, we talked about Oscar Sheepway, but Drew Timmy at Gonzaga. Uh, we saw just yesterday for North Carolina, Baycott announced that he's going to come back for another year. Those things don't happen if they can't get paid what they're being offered. And some people might not like it, but man, it does make for a better product uh, in the sport. And, and we've seen that. And I think, too, my thing when all the NIL stuff happened, everybody said, well, it could really infiltrate the locker room. You're going to have some jealousy. Look, yes, it's another dynamic, but the cream was going to rise to the top. Like the best managed, most well-coached teams that had control of their culture and locker rooms were going to be the ones that were going to be able to navigate it better than others. And so, I mean, look, if you had if you had a bunch of selfish kids before NIL was available, well, yeah, it was probably only going to get worse. But if you had unselfish kids that were always team first and said, hey, man, don't worry about it. You go get yours. I don't care who gets MVP. I just want us to win. I don't care who gets paid. I just want us to win. And I'll get mine as it comes. And so uh, that that's where I think you've seen it uh, probably impacted the least. I, I will say that the exhaustion is from coaches is, that, is on the recruiting trail. It's not so much – the players that have been there that are learning to handle NIL while they're on campus. It's you get some recruits. It's the first question, second, third, fourth. And they're like, Hey, can I show you our academic you know, uh, facility over here? Can I show you our weight room? And it's like, there's, you know, there's no interest. And at some point you, you just got to decide, all right, is it, it, if, if that's where the priorities are solely at, is it worth chasing this one? Dane Bradshaw, SEC network, our guest, Dane, I was surprised, obviously, like everyone else, when Princeton knocked off Arizona. 
I was shocked when they went wire to wire dominating Missouri in round two. I, I, that was almost more surprising to me that they came back and won the way they did against Missouri. What kind of chance do you give them now moving forward against Creighton? Yeah, well, in the Missouri game, too, I mean, the thing they did so well was take care of the basketball. Like, Missouri turns you over. That's where they get a lot of their points. They they frazzle you, and, and they handled the ball well, and they knocked down their, their shots. And so, um, look, do, do they do they have a shot? Yeah, I'm looking at some of their numbers. You know, they, they do a great job keeping teams off the glass. Um, but, you know, as shocked as I am to get a, see them in the Sweet 16, I would certainly be even more shocked to, to, to see them advance. This is one where, um, yeah, I, I see that Cinderella story ending, whereas somebody like Florida Atlantic, Michigan State, even though it's a brand name, the, those are teams that I think probably have more winnable matchups than the Princeton Tigers do. Well, I'm curious on the Cinderella end of this. The From the player perspective, the uh, upset weekend, right? You make the Sweet 16. Uh, you're playing top talent based on where you're seated, and you go back to campus. Then you turn around and go back. I'm, I would throw Arkansas into this mix too because they were more yeah. emotional than any team. Is there an emotional and energy drain or an energy crash off of that four four day span that it's tough to like vamp, revamp and get right back up the following weekend? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, when you compare a big win during regular season where maybe it's a road win or you win at home and it's a Saturday night, whatever, and you knock off number one, Alabama, like and it's regular season and there's less at stake on that following Tuesday or Wednesday against, uh, you know, maybe you're playing Ole Miss. That's got more potential for the hangover effect where everybody's telling you how great you are. Way to go. You knocked off number one, like all that. And you party too hard. Right now, man, if you can't stay disciplined and just stay excited for the task at hand, then you don't deserve to be playing. Like it's it's so everything is on the line still. So to me, it's it's much more of an excitement. Yeah, you got to be cautious with all the media attention and all those things. But um, at least as a player and as a as what I think a coach would say, you're you're just less concerned about your your players, you know you know, you know, falling in love with all the, the hype and everything else at this point because it, it's do or die. You mentioned Florida Atlantic is one of the teams that you think can can win a couple uh, or win one. Why, why do you like the Owls more so than Princeton? Yeah, um, and, and it's really strength on strength when you look at, at Tennessee. The, the Owls, they've got four guards that can shoot the ball extremely well. Not that Princeton doesn't, but what they do is is they, they beat you from the three-point line. Um, and for this matchup against Tennessee, I, I say this about Tennessee all the time, so sorry to be repetitive, but they are at their best when they're sharing the basketball. Their knock on them is they don't have a lot of break-you-down, one-on-one guys go get you a bucket. They're second in the country at assisting on 66% of their makes. So that leans toward, hey, I get in the lane, I pass it, we, make open, we get open shots off of each other. Florida Atlantic, on the other hand, is second best in the country at stopping you from doing that. They only allow teams to assist on 33% of their makes. So that tells you, hey, we're going to take that away and we're going to make you make a one-on-one play and shoot tough twos over us. And so that's the kind of a stat I'll be watching all game long is, all right, if Tennessee has 10 made field goals so far in the first half, is it, you know, do they have two assists or do they have five or six? And that could kind of illustrate are they getting what they want? And that's where uh, I think Florida Atlantic 
because they can make you some take and make some of those tough shots. Uh, Josiah Jordan's James is going to have to make some of those tough contested pull up jumpers. You know, uh, Kamo is going to have to make some of those. And so with that in mind on the defensive end, as well as the three-point shooting for Florida Atlantic, and they've won games on the road. They love their team. I know one of their assistants well, Todd Abernathy. I mean, this is a team that is not just simply getting hot at the right time. They've been hot all season long, man, and they, they believe that they belong. Chad and I may need to take some of this advice on our uh, bet the board picks a little bit later. With uh, I, I, I was on record. I, I do not like the matchup for Tennessee uh, in terms of stylistically and with those guards. But Tennessee's a better team, I think, you know, top to bottom. So we'll we'll see it firsthand a little bit later tonight. Yeah, Dane, thank you so much, man. As always, we 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 love having you on and previewing the matchups. Thanks a lot, man. Y'all enjoy New York. Should be awesome. Absolutely, Dane Bradshaw. Thanks, there. Dane. Enjoy uh, Dane on SEC Network. Chad, and part of what you're saying comes down to officiating as well and how the officials are going to treat this matchup against Florida Atlantic. We, we have our bet-the-board picks like we've done. We're betting every game in the NCAA tournament. We'll have that a bit later. Also, we have our top 10 mock draft. Chad and I have each submitted ours. We'll see where the big surprises are right now, and we'll also do it the week of the draft and compare how much our opinion will change based on what teams and what media members are hearing uh, with the buzz around the top players in the NFL draft coming in as rookies off the combine. When we come back, a story of a Florida man and, well, a Gator. That's next in Outkick 360. From 6th and Peabody with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Glad you're with us for Outkick 360 across the Outkick Network. With Rowan Hutton uh, with you. We've got uh, plenty of discussion on the NCAA tournament coming up. We also have our mock draft for the top 10 of the NFL draft as we get set to uh, head into the final week of March into April. And then the draft will be upon us live from Kansas City. Chad, uh, UConn, we had the story earlier. UConn in Las Vegas for the Sweet 16, possibly the Elite Eight. Uh, they had to move out of their hotel. Uh, chances are it was not the, the chicken ranch where uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, new Raiders quarterback, has been offered uh, free sex uh, from... For life. Yeah, for life. Uh, for those that are at the, the chicken ranch, namely uh, two of these uh, women. This is also known as probably every straight single woman on the planet, I think, would offer Jimmy Garoppolo free sex for life also. So yeah. this is nothing new. Uh, most of the, also, most of the women I see interacting with Jimmy Garoppolo on social media, yeah. or if you bring up the name Jimmy Garoppolo around women, they're not saying, "Boy, that's a bad looking guy." They're they're making sort of the same offer, but, but, even if it's what, not spoken out loud out front. The offer it's but, there. For but him. what surprises me is is he doesn't look at look at this and say, "Oh, there's a woman who has sex with literally anyone who will pay her." Yeah. That's what he's. Uh, well, he's already but I mean, I also look with... at it like it, she's a pro, so she does this for a living. So it'd be like an attorney coming to someone and saying, "I will give you free legal counsel for life." That's how much I love you. So this is her offering up her services 
that she charges for for free. So it's even more of a compliment. So they're awful. To Jimmy also, a, a few of your new Raiders teammates. Well, then that it's lessened. The compliment is lessened when you say, and throw in your offensive line too, and then we'll have a package deal, and it'll be it'll be fun. Everything's going to be good. All expenses paid, of course, is is what it says. Yes, uh, Jimmy G living the life now with the Raiders out in Vegas. Um, I wouldn't call this living the life. A Florida man, he's literally feeding uh, an alligator out in the in the wild. Now, the Florida Wildlife uh, Commission they say that it's very the odds are low that you're going to be bitten by an alligator, but they're just relaxing in a creek and Chad feeding an alligator. Uh, this pork loin, yeah, pork loin, yeah. But this this reminds me of like you've been around a cat where you're like, oh, the cat's not going to hurt you. You're petting the cat, and then the cat all of a sudden scratches you. And it hurts. Yeah, and it hurts. Um, this is ridiculous. There's, this man will be eaten. He, he wants to die in this creek by an alligator. Bite. I'd also like to ask the Florida Wildlife, whatever it is, department, that do, do the odds go up when you're dangling your hand out in front <laughs> holding food out of getting bitten? It's one thing to say the odds of getting bitten by an alligator if you're minding your own business is low in this state. Another thing to say, so feed them pork loin because nothing bad could happen there. When you're dangling meat out in front of an alligator, odds are it may come out a little bit too far and take your hand at some point. So this is once again a disturbing move by Florida man and completely idiotic. He looks like a Star Wars villain on some planet that's like feeding and playing with pets that shouldn't be pets, some sort of fictional creature that he's feeding and has around him. That's what I thought about when I saw this and guy. He, he is he is job of the hut. Out here feeding this alligator. There's been, uh, uh, over the last year, two people that have died, uh, including an el- elderly woman, I believe, in February. Feeding pork loin to an alligator? No, just she was dragged oh. into the water it's and killed. And, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, it's only happened uh, a handful of times, but it does happen. And feeding uh, an alligator in Florida is illegal. And, <laughs> of course, they're doing it anyway. Dumb. Just, I mean, I, I just... When I see a story like this, I don't understand how you get to the point mentally where you think nothing bad can well, happen to me. I grew up on a farm, and in the pond, there are snapping turtles. Okay, uh, Chances of being bitten by one if you're walking by the pond, you're fine. But walking in, or if you see one going up to one, yeah, I'm not going to you know, throw my luck out there and say, you know what, today's not the day. I'm fine. Guy's an idiot. And he's, I mean, he's sitting there with uh, a family member. It's a Reminds wild, me of Chad and a dog. It's a wild animal. Very, very timid. And then, oh, I like dogs. Well, dogs can go animal too, right? Even if they're domesticated, <laughs> like they can at some point just snap and go after you. But this the, is the raccoon dog or whatever we saw yesterday oh, from Davey. Don't, don't get me started. That nightmare fuel that Davey showed us yesterday. <laughs> but this is a wild alligator. I, I don't know that you can domesticate an alligator either, but this is just I don't think so. an animal in the wild that could maim you or kill you. And you're feeding it pork loin. Just really dumb yeah. in so many ways. Yeah, the, uh, for those that missed it yesterday, here's the, the raccoon dog. Um, like part fox, part raccoon. And uh, Chad, you're right. Not, nightmare fuel. Don't show this I to think I your saw daughter. Just a to chance the, the closet for, uh, for the raccoon dog. I feel like I was at a zoo recently with my daughters, and there was something like this creature at the zoo that really caught my eye. With, with all the names of animals at the zoo, isn't it strange it's just called a raccoon dog? Well, that's probably that, the slang term for it. It's got to have like an actual name, right? No, that's the name. The name of this is Raccoon Dog? Yeah. 
of all the names. They just combined two names. I mean, do we know that's the name, or did Davey just say that was the name of it? When Davey was speaking on let's, this yesterday, be, I, looked up, I looked up what this animal was. And yeah, common fact, raccoon it's a common dog. raccoon dog. I mean, that, that's it. Yeah. Chad, your thoughts? Most closely related to foxes, the common raccoon dog. <laughs> uh, the, the genus name of it is Nysteritus procyonatus. <laughs> it's also called the Chinese or Asian raccoon dog. Coming up, we've got headlines. We will dive into uh, all sports. And we've also got the NFL draft. We preview this week 16. All straight ahead, the final hour coming up on Outkick 360.